Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hi, I'm Phil Craig. And I'm Andrew Loney. And together we aim to bring you the most scandalous stories and some of the most scandalous people in history. So thanks for joining us here on the Scandalmongers podcast. Well, it's exciting. This week we're going to America, which we haven't uh, really covered before, and to one of the great, I think, uh, unexplained assassinations of modern time. Indeed. And also, I should say, I know you you actually live in the 1950s, obviously, uh, but um, <laughs> we're, now, we're now joining the era of the 60s. Hey, we're yes. out. <laughs> and in some ways, you know, as we get closer and more difficult to research these books, and I think our next guest is an incredible job. I think it was also TV documentary. But um, he's as he's very careful in what he says. But I think it's pretty damning what he's found. Yes. Well, we should, again, we should just say it, it's it's the 60s. It's Robert Kennedy. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. Um, and his um, assassination in June 1968, really just after he's won the California primary. Indeed, his assassination, which has been much less explored, certainly in this country, than the assassination of his brother, but maybe without further ado, you'd like to introduce the person we're going to be interviewing. Well, Tim Tate is one of my authors, one of my, uh, in sense, most distinguished authors. He's written a series of, I suppose, investigative uh, histories based often on, on documentaries he's made. Uh, and this book that he did on the assassination of Robert Kennedy, uh, I think, really broke new ground. I mean, they found, for example, uh, new witnesses uh, and indeed a possible new candidate for the murder. So we were very pleased to, that he was able to join us and to to talk in such detail about actually the events of, of June June the 5th, 1968. OK, stand by everybody. I think you're in for a scandalous treat. Watch this space. Well, I think this is one of our best ones because this is in some ways one of the great miscarriages of justice. Um, and I think without your work, Tim, this story really wouldn't have emerged. Well, there are others who deserve a lot of credit. Um, I, I'm just, as you know, an old journalist, Andrew. I just, <laughs> well, you've done a, a terrible, a, a terrific job, I think. And I think, Phil, you were very 
sort of taken with reading. Yeah, I was grumbling that I'm not getting on with my own work because I thought I'll just skim read this book so I can ask a few questions. And I found myself drawn into a world of girls in polka dot dresses and Manchurian candidates. And every chapter reads like a movie script. I mean, it, it is an amazing story, but we are always accused of rushing ahead and we're doing it again. So can I drag you back to some very basic primers just for people who don't know? And I'm sure a lot of people, certainly in Britain, will know very little about, um, but I guess we should start at the beginning. You know, we've set up Kennedy, uh, we've set up California, and then the night comes, there's a murder. Um, maybe you could just tell us why that moment was so very important, not just for the crime, but for America itself. The the year of 1968 was a, was a, a pivotal and very violent year in American history. Um, in terms of Bobby Kennedy, he had joined the... Well, 1968 was the year of presidential primaries, so primary elections f- to win the nomination for each individual party, Republican and Democratic. Normally, in the Democrat Party, there wouldn't have been much in the way of primaries because Lyndon Johnson was the incumbent president. But Johnson had taken the decision just late in 67 that he wasn't going to run again. And that left a huge gap, obviously, in the political landscape. Senator McCarthy had stepped in early and had made all the front running. Bobby Kennedy was a latecomer to this. He agonized and he dithered, frankly, about whether to join the race. When he did, he set out his stall very, very clearly. And what he said was, he was running not just to change the personnel at the top of the American political system, but policies. He said, Vietnam, we need to get out of Vietnam. And just as importantly at home, he saw a real need to address the fundamental problems besetting America, which were economic and racial injustice. And you know, it's we do tend to think, don't we, the sixties, uh, as you know, peace, love, space race, pop music, and actually in America, it's war, it's riots, it's assassinations. It's a country kind of on the edge. History is a really complicated beast, isn't it? Because it's all of that. It's it, on the one hand, it is peace and love. I mean, the sixties. I grew up in the sixties were an era of optimism, political optimism by and large, but at the same time, literally at the same time, America was being torn apart by race riots. It was being torn apart by feeding its young men into the meat grinder of Vietnam, never mind what it was doing on the in Vietnam and Laos and Cambodia later. It was almost a schizophrenic time. You had this feeling of optimism, hope that the world could change for the better. And coupled with that, yes, there was the the hippie peace and love movement growing as well, something I have to say that Bobby Kennedy had little truck with. But at the same time, you have this incredibly violent society 
where economic and racial injustice are blights upon American cities, so which had been set aflame. He sets his stall out as the hope and change candidate. He has a lot of energy, youthful support, and then this terrible, suddenly, he wins the California primary, and he's suddenly dead. I mean, it must have been absolutely shattering to it ordinary was, Americans. I mean, it was, it was utterly shattering. We have to remember that Kennedy's assassination wasn't an isolated, Robert, Robert Kennedy's assassination wasn't an isolated event. It was the last of four political assassinations in that decade. John Kennedy's first, Malcolm X, Martin Luther King a few months before Bobby Kennedy, and then Bobby Kennedy's death. You have something which had never been experienced before, which was a succession of political assassinations. And Kennedy, this candidate, as you say, of change, the man who was promising to bring change to America, much needed change, who ran on a campaign which was, in his own words, of revolution, was assassinated just at the point where he had won the crucial primary to get the Democrat nomination for the presidential election. And had he lived with having won California, he would have gone on to the convention and likely have been nominated and then would have taken on Richard Nixon in the presidential election. And I think it's a fair bet that he would have beaten Nixon. Golly, wow, a, t- a true turning point, Christ. Yeah, very much so. I mean, it's a pivotal moment. I, I think if you want to chart the point in, in America, points in American history where, to coin a phrase, the dream died, I think Bobby Kennedy's assassination was the the most crucial and it was followed by Altamont, um, the mm. deaths at the Rock Concert in Altamont the year later. And at that point, the 60s are over. The decade of optimism and hope is over. And what follows is are the 70s with all of the misery and pain that they so, achieve. So there he is. He's dead. There's a man with a gun in his hand who's arrested. <laughs> Looks bang to rights to me, to everybody else. But it's your case, your carefully argued case, that actually the, he wasn't the man and, and he's been wrongly imprisoned. If I, just to paraphrase you, why was this guy, Saran Saran, kind of the obvious target? And, and what happened when he was arrested that made the police think, we don't need to look any further? You, you know, it, it, there's a cliche, isn't there? Fought with the smoking gun. Sahan Sahan was quite literally (laughs) caught with a smoking gun in the pantry. He had no ifs, no buts, no maybes, fired that gun at Bobby Kennedy and his entourage. He had emptied all eight chambers in his cheap little revolver at Kennedy and his entourage. He had been caught, apparently, in the act. He certainly was caught in the act of firing his weapon at Kennedy and his entourage. You know, if you're the police, <laughs> it's it's not unreasonable to say, we've got this guy, he's pointing a gun, he shot the gun, 
Kennedy is mortally wounded. Five other people are badly wounded. We think we've got our guy. <laughs> you know, it's it's not an unreasonable assumption to make, is it? You know, Sehan was there. He did shoot. He was caught with the gun in his hand. So how quickly did people realise that that wasn't perhaps the full story? In less than 24 hours, the first and most damning piece of evidence emerged that it couldn't have been Sahan who shot Bobby Kennedy. And that was the autopsy. The autopsy was performed by Thomas Naguchi, who was the medical examiner for the, for the, uh, for the county and an incredibly experienced pathologist. He his autopsy showed that Kennedy had been shot three times. The fatal sh- all had all of those shots had been fired from behind Kennedy, and the fatal shot had been fired into the back of Kennedy's head from a distance of between one and a half and three inches from the back of Kennedy's head. Why is that a problem? Because every eyewitness. Every eyewitness in the pantry, and there were dozens, all told the police that Sahan was never behind Kennedy. At all times, he was in front of Kennedy. Now, you know, it's a simple piece of physics, isn't it? If you're in front of someone, you can't shoot them in the back of the head. Plus, he was he was several feet away, wasn't he? He was not that close. At the, at the minimum, at the minimum, his gun, well, the closest his gun ever got to Kennedy was three feet from the front of Kennedy. Right. You know, how do you shoot someone in the back of the head at one and a half to three inches if your gun is three feet in front of the man? And, yeah, wow. And then, and then other evidence sort of began to emerge, didn't it, from a recording of the um, uh, of the killing, and, and also just the number of bullets fired. Yeah, the, <clears throat> taking the latter first, Sehan had an eight-shot Ivor Johnson cheap Saturday night special revolver, and he fired all eight bullets in it. Chamber was empty when they subdued him, and the police accounted for all eight bullets. Three hitting Kennedy, five hitting people behind Kennedy. So that's all of Sehan's bullets accounted for. No one else, according to the police, drew or fired a weapon in the pantry. And yet, their own officers examined the pantry within minutes and hours, there are LAPD officers, sheriff's officers, FBI officers combed through the pantry, and they found and photographed around 14 bullet holes in the woodwork. Now, firstly, you can't get 14 <laughs> bullets from an eight-shot revolver. Yeah. But secondly... He couldn't, he couldn't reload, could he? Because people no, were jumping on him. When, when Saham was was caught literally within seconds at, at the, he he was jumped on by kennedy's bodyguards one of whom was a huge american football player yeah um yeah. so never never reloaded so how if he fired eight shots which are all accounted for in the victims are the 14 bullet holes in pantry woodwork 
It doesn't, I mean, it simply doesn't add up. And, you know, that's not people saying, well, I recall seeing that afterwards. The police photographed these bullet holes and they photographed their officers pointing at these bullet holes, marking them as bullets and bullet holes. Amazing. And when did this, the, there was a sense that there might be some sort of cover-up begin to sort of emerge? Again, very, very quickly. This is, I mean, this is one of the odd things about the Robert Kennedy assassination. The evidence that the official history, if you like, of the assassination isn't right was there literally within minutes of the assassination. And at this point, we have to talk about the polka dot dress girl. <laughs> Story starts, and I, when I say within minutes, I mean absolutely literally within minutes. The story starts with a young woman campaign worker, 19-year-old campaign worker called Sandy Serrano. And while Kennedy was giving his victory speech just before the assassination in the ballroom of the hotel, Sandy nipped out to a fire escape to get some air. And she encountered a girl in a polka dot dress and companions rushing down the fire escape, fire escape steps past her. And as they passed, the girl shouted out, we shot him, we shot him. And Serrano, who had no idea that anything untoward had happened, said, well, who did you shoot? And she said, the senator. We shot the senator. And they ran off into the night. Sandy ran round to the front of the hotel, trying to find somebody who knew, some, knew something. And so we're talking three or four, five minutes after the, the shooting. And the first person she encountered was uh, an assistant uh, district attorney. And she told the story to him. And he hooked her up with a local television news station who were broadcasting live. And so within 20 to 25 minutes of the, the shooting, Sandy was live on television saying, these people rushed past me, this girl in the polka dot dress and friends rushed past me saying they'd shot the senator. What's going on? In total, 25 eyewitnesses saw the girl in the polka dot dress. Many of them saying they saw her with Sihan or with someone who looks like Sihan. So from, from day one, less than day one, you have really convincing testimony, eyewitness testimony from eyewitnesses who said somebody else was there saying they did it. And this was publicly it, public, public information. What happened to that is that LAPD, first of all, pressured those witnesses, browbeat them, literally browbeat them. I obtained the audio recordings of LAPD's interviews with Serrano and others, and the cops were screaming at her. This is in a polygraph. Yes, they're saying things like, are you afraid? Are you afraid, aren't they? Weird stuff like yeah, that. And, 
And frankly, Sandy was afraid. I mean, I've got to know Sandy over the years, and I have an immense respect for her. And she's never wavered in her story. But essentially, LAPD browbeat her and the other witnesses. And then when they couldn't break Sandy, they just sim- they simply announced, oh, well, she changed her story. She never had changed her story. And for the next 20 years, they buried all that evidence. And this, this tape recording that Andrew referred to, did that emerge much later or was that also around? This also is about the number of bullets, isn't it? Yeah. So... Sorry to mess jumping around all over the place. It's fine. Um, there's a common misconception that the, the shooting was captured on film. It wasn't. The first television cameras following Kennedy through the pantry were turned on around 12 to 15 seconds after the shooting. And those were, that's where we see the iconic images of Kennedy lying on the floor like that with a, a busboy, Juan Romero, leaning over it. For 25 years, there was an assumption that there had been no recording of the the shooting in the pantry. That was wrong. There has, had been, and was, still is, one recording. And that was from a freelance Canadian reporter who was following the campaign, who was following Kennedy as he left the stage and heading towards the pantry and had forgotten to switch his little cassette recorder off. And he captured, the man, the reporter's called Stan Prusinski, he captured the only recording of the events in question. Now, that tape wasn't found by the FBI for several months after until several months after the assassination. And when they found it, they simply logged it, handed it over to LAPD, logged it, and it was left in evidence. And there it lay. All that evidence, all of the evidence, was suppressed for 20 years. LAPD and the district attorney's office refused to release any of the evidence for 20 years. And they they fought, they fought off numerous lawsuits trying to make them do that to release it finally they did and it was released in 1988 and that's where i first got hold of the material when when it was the files were released but i overlooked this tape i didn't realize what it was it was my my colleague um who co-wrote the book with me who dug it up in the early 90s and again he didn't realize what it was he was just looking for anything and going through the tapes and he played this cassette recording on headphones and thought hold on that doesn't sound like eight gunshots and brad was a good solid journalist and he did what a good solid investigative journalist does he sent it out to the top expert in audio recordings a man who quite literally wrote the book on this (laughs) and said would you analyze this for me and that expert a man called phil van prague did an extraordinary amount of work in the mid 90s and his utterly patient 
utterly forensic, utterly painstaking analysis shows that there were at least, at least 13 separate shot sounds on that tape. Again, how do you get 13 shots from an eight chamber revolver? You can't. It's actually on, it's on YouTube. I'm sure, I'm sure you know. I watched it this morning. You can hear it and you can see Paul analyzing it. It might have been from your film, actually, but it's very, very good. It was from Brad's film. And oh. more, I mean, it's even more telling than that. What, what Phil showed is that some of the sounds were so close together. Some of these gunshot sounds were so close together that it is physically impossible they came from the same gun. More than that, because Phil is an absolutely painstaking forensic analyst, he was able to show that the sounds came from different directions. Some came from behind Kennedy, some came from in front of Kennedy. Inevitably, cut a long story short, the ones that came from in front in front of Kennedy were Sahan. They, they were him firing at the group in and around Kennedy. The ones that came from behind Kennedy are the ones that killed him. And do we think that was the woman in the polka dot dress? And why didn't anyone uh, sort of notice whoever was firing behind Kennedy? You could have, you've got to try and imagine this, the scene in this pantry. So you've got Kennedy and his entourage, and we're talking a, a score or more of people pushing their way through this very narrow corridor into this subterranean pantry, dark, slightly dark pantry, where there's a whole load of other people waiting to shake Kennedy's hand. It's a, dark it's a slightly chaotic scene and all of this all of the shooting happened in a space of just over five seconds now you know you think about that you count five seconds six seconds now Mm. and you think would i have noticed this in a crowded space when everyone's looking at kennedy Oddly, there were people who noticed something. Not merely did they notice that Sahan was always in front of Kennedy, but there were witnesses who gave evidence to LAPD that they saw at least one person behind Kennedy draw his weapon, a security guard, a renter cop, if you like. Again, that evidence was suppressed by LAPD. So this, what's the motive? I mean, we need to get move on because we already have twenty five minutes. But it's so your working assumption seems to be that Sirhan is part of a plot. Maybe he's meant to distract people. The real killers have crept up behind. Maybe they're the people that run down the stairs with the girl in the polka dot dress. Um, I mean, it's, it's elaborate. It's complicated. Who? could possibly have arranged it. And I guess also Siran did at one point plead guilty, although he then said he couldn't remember. So it's all... No, he didn't plead guilty. He he sort of... <laughs> the whole question of Sahan and the trial is... Uh, it's, it's a mess, frankly. It's a mess. Sahan was a mess. His trial attorneys started 
from the position that Sahan was guilty. And since the death penalty was on the table, their job was to ensure he didn't go to the execution chamber. Um, and they tried to, pl- and they did plead diminished responsibility, therefore manslaughter, which would have, which got it, would have got him off or could have got him off. In fact, he was sentenced to death. It was only because California changed um, its rules that Sahan was not executed. He did try incoherently to plead guilty and dismiss his legal team during the trial, but the judge wouldn't have it, rightly, and Sahan was a complete mess during the trial. You know... Sorry, I interrupted you. Sorry, sorry. Well, I interrupted you. I mean, who was this man? I mean, you say was a mess, and and why could he possibly have had a motive? Sahan was um, he was a, a man from East Palestine. Uh, East Palestine. He'd come from um, a family in Palestine to the U.S. in 1956. He had been utterly unremarkable as a young man. A poor student, hadn't really held down much in the way of jobs, had no real political leanings one way or the other. He was, he didn't have a criminal record. I think he might have got a parking ticket at some point, but you know, that's as much as it was. Um, Sahan was utterly unremarkable. What the police found, which they said established a motive, were notebooks in his bedroom. And those notebooks, genuinely his notebooks, were filled with scribble. And some of that scribble said over and over again, RFK must die, RFK must die. And there was a tiny fragment of this evidence which indicated that he objected to Kennedy on the grounds that Kennedy had allegedly supported selling jets to Israel. You know, Sahan had no history of political involvement. He had no history of violence. He had no history of criminal behavior. So why was all this in his notebooks? Was it planted, do you think? No. And this is where, this is the point at which I have to take a deep breath and people normally look at me as if I have gone mad, because we're going to start talking about a Manchurian candidate. We're going to start talking about a hypno-programmed robot assassin. And it sounds the stuff of fiction, doesn't it? Unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on your point of view, it isn't fiction, it's fact. The CIA, what was they, in the 1950s spent an enormous amount of time, money and effort to create exactly that. They worked on a program, it was given the codename Operation Artichoke, to create a hypno-programmed robot assassin who would be programmed to assassinate a political figure and then have no memory of doing so and again it sounds it sounds like a conspiracy theory doesn't it 
Where it stops being a conspiracy theory is when it runs into hard documentary evidence. And I, like many other journalists, have that hard documentary evidence. I have the CIA's own documents which say, this is what we did, this is how we were going to do it, this is who we used, this is how it worked, and then the final document which said, we made it work. We perfected this. It works. So the robot assassin and the Manchurian candidate isn't a conspiracy theory. It's a fact, uncomfortable though that may be. And where this connects with the notebooks in Sirhan's flat, his apartment, are what's called automated writing. And it was part of Operation Artichoke. It was part of the CIA's program. Again, not me saying this, this is the CIA saying this, that to reinforce the programming, once hypnotized, the person would write constantly in this bizarre fashion. Those notebooks match exactly, but exactly the details of the hypno-programmed robot assassin program, which the CIA perfected. And any evidence that he himself, because it would have taken time, Sirhan could have been part of that program? Yes and no. (laughs) Yes, there is some evidence, but it's not hard evidence. There's a man called, was a man called William Bryant, who was, by his own account, and indeed by documentary evidence, one of the leaders of the hypno-programming experiments. And he talked about having hip-programmed Sihan. Now, Bryant died in somewhat mysterious circumstances in the early 1970s, so we can't go back and ask him. However, he is on audio tape talking about this. And it's pretty clear that he says or indicates he was involved in doing this. Is that proof that Sehan was hypnoprogrammed? No, of course it isn't. It's not proof that beyond a reasonable doubt. It's certainly evidence which should have been examined had there been a reasonable, honest, open and transparent investigation by the police and the district attorney. And you talk also about other shots being fired, the security guard. So do we have any idea of who maybe uh, pulled the fatal shot? Was it the security guard or the polka dot dress um, woman? And... Uh, how would they fit into the whole conspiracy? Well, one might have been an accident, of course. Yeah, I mean, again, what I, where I get slightly uncomfortable is, is venturing into areas of speculation. I like documents and I like facts and I like primary sources. In any reasonable investigation, the security guard, Thane Eugene Caesar, should have been interviewed and his gun, because he had a gun which matched exactly the gun used to fire the fatal shots into Kennedy. He should have been interviewed, and his gun should have been seized and examined. He was slightly interviewed, 
but his gun was never seized, and he was given a very easy ride by LAPD, the FBI, and the DA's office. Inexplicable, utterly inexplicable. Caesar is a good candidate, or was a good candidate, he's dead now, for the assassin, were it not for one thing. In the 90s, a another journalist, a reporter who'd done work on this case, paid to have Caesar <coughs> polygraphed. And according to this reporter, though he's never released the polygraph reports or tapes, Caesar passed. It's the best I can say is Caesar is a should have been a suspect. He had means, motive, and opportunity, but he wasn't treated as a suspect, and it's now too late, because he's dead, to do anything about him other than open the case up and come to a conclusion which is, is the conviction of Sihan safe? And it plainly isn't. Actually, one of the things I love about your book, actually, you, you, you do make a very strong case that there have been some huge errors here, and that there's clearly much more going on than than the official story. But you don't conclude. You don't say, I know this is the real answer. Um, you raise all sorts of fascinating stuff around the Manchurian candidate and everything. And um, We've got five minutes left, so I'd love to just say, step out of the comfort zone. It's not a book. There are no lawyers. What is your actual deepest instinctual feeling about what actually happened? Or maybe you don't know. How does the polka dot dress worn fit in? Because you you identified her. I think you were the first people to do that. Yeah, my colleague Brad um, did that. And he was the first person to say this is the most likely person. And he did that by showing a photo of her to eyewitnesses. And most of them said, yeah, that looks very much like the woman we saw. So we have a good candidate. Is it 100% proof? No, of course it isn't. Um before I step before I step out of my comfort zone, what I should because it's it's relevant, I what I should just say is that there were three genuine conspiracies which the FBI and LAPD knew about. Conspiracies to murder Robert Kennedy prior to his assassination, and they were specifically predicated on the basis that if he won the California primary and was looked like a serious candidate then he would be murdered. And these, the FBI and LAPD had the evidence of this, and they knew who the people concerned were. One was a, a wealthy rancher who boasted that he had paid $2,000 into a quarter of a million dollar assassination fund being run by his friends in organized crime in Las Vegas. The other two involved um, Jimmy Hoffa and the Teamsters Union. And again, there were eyewitness test. There were eyewitnesses who said Hoffa told me that he was going to have Bobby Kennedy rubbed out if he got into the prize. Kennedy been investigating organised crime. He'd made a lot of enemies, hadn't he? Kennedy had made huge enemies in organised crime and in the Teamsters Union, which Hoffa ran. And within the um, major agricultural industry, 
particularly in California, hence the rancher being of interest. What I found inexplicable when I found these reports in the long-suppressed official files, and these reports of these being interviewed, and for example, the rancher said, yes, yes, I did say that. I do admit that I said I'd paid into this fund to have Kennedy assassinated. Um, but no, I didn't really mean it. <laughs> and they left him alone. And the same, uh, the same with Hoffa. Hoffa, like all of these, the people involved in these genuine documented conspiracies had means, motive and opportunity. Hoffa told the FBI to bugger off. And the FBI said, well, okay then. And that so was that. Why did the FBI, I mean, you've got the DA, the FBI, and the LAPD all taking the same line. I mean, is this coincidence, or were, were they getting orders from someone else? Again, without wishing to sound like I'm being overly cautious, I start from the position, this is the evidence. What does the evidence show? The evidence shows that Sahan could not and did not have, could not have and did not shoot Bobby Kennedy. Yes, he shot other people, but he didn't kill and shoot and kill Kennedy. Well, if he didn't, who did? And who had means, motive, and opportunity? And that's surely a classic way, an honest way, of conducting an investigation. Well, in, in, the, fi- in the final minutes, because we are about to be... Yeah, well, we can go a bit longer, Phil. I think it's this great stuff. We can't. I mean, uh, well, we'll have to have a, se- a separate Zoom. Maybe we can- <laughs> oh, okay, we can do 40 minutes. Because I mean, we've been trying to get investigations for, for almost 60 years. And so why has that been sort of curtailed well the most recent stymieing of an investigation came um 10 days ago or thereabouts so han's been in prison since 1968 he has repeatedly applied for parole he still says exactly what he said all those years ago i do not remember what happened the last thing sehan remembers is having a cup of coffee with a girl in the polka dot dress in the part of the Ambassador Hotel. And the next thing he remembers is Kennedy's Bobby bodyguard jumping on his head. <laughs> so the so Mr. has been in prison all this time. He should, he's long eligible for parole. Parole has been refused each time until last year when the parole board said, yes, we should release Sahan. The governor of California overruled that and it went back to the parole board just about just over a week ago and the same parole board which had said sehan is suitable for release now says sehan isn't suitable for release okay we're going to stop and i'm going to come back to you with another zoom link because we're too cheap to have a professional account hang on stand by your beds well here we are we're back we are back and we've lost andrew <laughs> i don't know where he's gone was it something I said? I don't think so. I think it's probably taking an urgent call from a secret source that's going to blow open some incredible scandal. Either that or he's dealing with the gas board. I don't know. Something. <laughs> it something. could be the same. One and the same. But no, I'm sorry. We are so cheap. We're definitely going to have to get a professional account on Zoom. It probably costs nothing. And we're, Actually, we've got our first royalty check. Amazing world of podcasting. Two whole pounds. Well, don't spend it all in the same shop. <laughs> no, uh, well, we are still, we're still a baby podcast. We do have hopes of, um, you know, becoming like one of those um, 
or what's the one everybody emulates. The rest is history. But we just really do it have a have fun and to find amazing things out. So let's go back to the story that we we've discussed. I don't know, the patience of our audience could be um, could be at risk if I keep going on. Oh, here's Andrew. Andrew. Andrew's arriving. Here, Andrew, we're just talking about you behind your back. Well, so sorry about that. I've got, as uh, Tim will know, I've got an MP who's trying to get a meeting with the Cabinet Office, oh. and he just rang me on my mobile, but it was a bit garrulous. So apologies, Tim, for holding you up. Don't worry at all. Good insight into your scandalous life, Andrew. My scandalous life. Well, I don't know. We're trying to get a meeting, but they're, they're, they're not even having meetings to discuss the Matt Batten thing, oh, which we now see as totally predicated on a lie and they've lied to anyway let's get on with tim because that's the important thing it is well we just got to the pardon and i and i was trying to challenge tim you know to say put all of your journalistic principles to one side and go for it what do you actually think happened because that's what i ought to know i'm gonna start with what didn't happen sahan sahan did not shoot bobby kennedy no ifs no buts no maybes he couldn't and didn't that means somebody else did. We know from LAPD's own documents that there were conspiracies to assassinate Kennedy involving organised crime and, well, primarily involving organised crime. We also know that that the CIA had perfected a robot assassin programme. Again, not my conclusion, that's the CIA's own documents. We'll, we do know that the CIA and organised crime had long worked together. That's an unfortunate truth. Given all of the evidence, I think on the balance of probability, you would come to anyone reasonable would come to the conclusion there is strong prima facie evidence of a conspiracy to kill Bobby Kennedy involving organized crime with the assistance of or and or at the behest of the CIA. Now that's I think that's where the evidence points. I want to I'm sorry to be cautious. It's not proof. Mm. And what's in it for the CIA? Why would they get involved? They loathed Kennedy. They absolutely loathed Bobby Kennedy. Loathed his brother as well. But Kennedy had antagonized them from the Bay of Pigs onwards, and he was also planning, and had told people he was planning, to reopen the investigations into his brother's death. Now, I'm no expert on the John Kennedy assassination, but it's no great secret that the allegations are the CIA was involved in that. Did the CIA have a motive? Yes, they had a motive. They loathed Ken- They loathed Robert Kennedy. Did they have the opportunity? Yes, they had the opportunity. Did they have the means? Yes, they had the means. If you're conducting an an honest investigation as a police force, as a DA, you start with the evidence and work upwards. What you don't do is start with a conclusion and work downwards. And that's what happened. And what I and Brad, my colleague, the late Brad, have argued for is a complete re- 
investigation of the assassination of Robert Kennedy. Why? Well, there are any number of political reasons. It was an important, an incredibly important assassination. It changed the course of American history, changed the course of world history as well. And the evidence, the official account doesn't match the official evidence. The two are irreconcilable. That's why we said there needs to be a new open, honest, and transparent investigation. And let those chips fall where they may. Do you and think the Kennedy that the family are in support of this, aren't they? Yes and no. The the Kennedy family is split. The majority of Bobby Kennedy's children, and there are a lot, are opposed to anything to do with the reopening of the case or the release of Sirhan on parole. Two members of Kennedy's um, children, two, two of Kennedy's children, have said that Sehan should be released on patrol, on parole. Unfortunately, one of them, or the lead one of them, is Robert Kennedy Jr., who is, how to put this kindly, a divisive figure, a man who is no stranger to the wilder shores of conspiracy theories, and who is also and I say this from personal experience, utterly unreliable. He was meant, for example, to turn up and speak for Sahan at the last parole hearing the other week. He simply didn't show. There is a, there is a real split within the Kennedy family, and that, I think, plays in to the inertia which surrounds this case. Should it? Well, not in my view, no. I mean, the evidence is there. It is absolutely crystal clear there. There's enough evidence to reopen the case and to conduct an honest investigation. Okay. And lest we forget, lest we forget, John Kennedy's assassination was the subject of the Warren Commission and was examined by the Select Committee on Assassinations. There has never been anything remotely comparable for Robert Kennedy's assassination. Okay, well, your your book, which is, I really would recommend to anybody, it's, it's a fantastic read and it makes a very compelling case. But you must have had your critics. I haven't found any. I haven't gone, gone looking, but I bet you have. Somebody must have come <laughs> out and said, come on, Tim. Th- th- of course, there are only eight bullets or, you know, this is all nonsense. I mean, has, has anybody said anything like that that's made you think, ooh, actually? I mean, there are, yeah, not, well, not quite directly to me. There are... There are a couple of people who, writers, who have argued that the, that Sehan absolutely definitely killed Bobby Kennedy. And they have indulged in what, to me as a journalist, seem like extraordinary, gym, extraordinary gymnastics to try and make the evidence fit that. It doesn't. But they argue it till they're blue in the face. Well, the, the, um, the lunging. They say he may have lunged forward with his gun. I, did, I, I think it's all that. You, this, is, this is trying to square the circle, which says, how can Sahan in front of Kennedy, three feet in front of Kennedy, shoot him from one and a half to three inches in the back of the head? How do you square that? Well, one of these writers says, oh, well, there was something that one of the witnesses said she thought that Sahan had lunged at Kennedy. Well, I thought, well, that, that could explain it. So I went back and looked at her evidence, her transcribed interviews. I didn't say anything like that. 
She des- she describes something which might approximate to that, but she makes it very clear, as she did in filmed reconstructions by the district attorney, that Sahan was always in front of Kennedy. You cannot, and you should not, in my view as a journalist, twist evidence to support a conclusion you want to reach. You should start with the evidence and say, that's where it points. Are you not surprised that, you know, someone from the DA's office or the FBI hasn't sort of emerged to say we were nobbled, you know, that there's clearly a case here? Um, or does it not surprise you that these people will, will keep, keep quiet about this, this cover up? No, it doesn't surprise me remotely. Um, you have to bear in mind two things. Firstly, uh, LA law, if you want to call it that, the DA's office and LAPD quite literally suppressed at all the evidence for 20 years and destroyed some of it, in fact. By the time it emerged and by the time people like me began really examining the dot and comma of all the all the in, interviews and investigations that had been conducted, many of the original players in this saga were dead. They couldn't come forward. And I think you know, it's not unreasonable to point out that big organisations, law enforcement organisations and governments, because it's a government body, a local government body, have an inertia. They have an inbuilt desire to protect that which has been said and done before. I mean, there's, beyond that, there is very little mileage for them. There's very little political benefit for a, a new DA or a new attorney general to come out and say, yeah, we, we, there are problems. We're going to reinvestigate. The opposite is true. There is a great deal of political pressure not to do this. It is a political third rail if you are a Democrat in California. And you mean you've got a petition that people can sign, which we'll put up on on the uh, on the, when the program goes out. But I mean, could public pressure make a difference? I mean, are there high level supporters of 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 Sahan Sahan being released? Um, there are some, but not enough. And this, unfortunately, is is a problem. the The campaign, the work to actually reopen the investigation is plagued by journalists with egos and desire to claim glory. It's not what Brad and I are about, I'm afraid. Um, and they squabble amongst themselves. I, I know them and I've worked with them and I say I have said repeatedly, what needs to happen is a concerted political with a small p campaign to bring about public pressure to hold an honest and open and investi- new investigation. And it never gets anywhere because there, there are too many entrenched egos within the people who should know better. And if you're sitting in Sacramento in, in the governor's residence, that's great. There is no organised opposition to you doing what you should not be doing, which is suppressing further genuine public importance. 
What was the impact of your book? And, and you also did a documentary. I mean, that must have had sent some shockwaves through through the system. I don't know. The, I don't know if it did, Andrew. I mean, I'm, the film I made was in 1992. I think it's fair to say it took me four years to persuade Channel Four here in the UK and A and E in the US to commission this film. Um, it didn't seem to make a great deal of difference to to anybody then. And the book, it may have changed people's opinions, but unless and until there's something organised, unless there's a coherent attempt by people who know the truth to step forward and say, honestly, we need to be, we, we need to tell the truth here. We need to examine the evidence publicly and honestly. Then unless and until that happens, I don't see anything changing. Well, that's that's um, slightly sad, but sorry, Andrew, we've done an hour. You obviously have another question. Uh, well, one final question. What's the state of play of Sahan Sahan? Because he's almost 80. He's been in prison since his mid-20s. I mean, he must feel incredibly let down by by the system. I don't know what if he's got any family. Um, you know, there's a human tragedy here, apart from anything else. It's it is certainly a human tragedy. Sahan's in prison, as you say, and he has been ever since 1968. He has a brother to, with whom he was going to live. Um, were he to be released on parole. So Hans in a, in that horrible catch 22. The board, the pardon, board of pardons and paroles and the governor now say he hasn't done enough work to acknowledge his guilt. He can't acknowledge his guilt because he doesn't remember. That's not me saying. He doesn't remember. It's not just Sehan saying he doesn't remember. Every psychological and psychiatric report that's been carried out for both defence and prosecution says Sehan has genuine amnesia over this. He's in that catch-22. Unless he admits that he did it, which he can't because he didn't, he doesn't know. Well, he said and he, he didn't. didn't. He didn't. He's he did. catch-22. <laughs> he, can't, he can't get out. Um his lawyer, who his new lawyer, who I have a great deal of respect for, um, is challenging the decision to keep him inside uh, on the grounds of habeas corpus, and um, and I think that's a good, sensible attempt. But that's simply aimed at getting Sihan out on parole. It's not aimed at opening up a new, transparent, honest, official investigation, and that's what's needed. And you, for what it's worth, I would just say, Phil, you were very kind. You said we, as journalists, Brad and I, did not say, here's what you should believe. We said, you make your own mind up. But when we did that, what we said and showed in the book is, here's the evidence. Here's where you find the evidence. Here's where you, the reader, can go to the primary sources that we used. And that's, I think, the most honest thing that journalists can do. Say, here's the evidence. If you want to read it for yourself, don't take our word for it. Here's where you go and find it. And you can. It's what well, we amen, amen to that. And thank you, Tim, so much for, well, certainly educating me on something. that I sort of just, it's just one of those stories that's in the corner of your head, isn't it? We, we ne- I've never really focused on it. And it is absolutely incredible, truly incredible. And thanks for sharing your amazing knowledge of it with us. Well, thank you for having me. All right. Well, uh, cheers. And um, we will certainly put up the petition on our 
a two-pound a month earning that, podcast. That, 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 that petition is nothing to do with me, um, but I think it's a very good petition. All right, well, we'll yes, do it. We'll certainly do that. And thank you so much, Tim. It's been absolutely uh, fascinating. Thank you, yeah, you have. If you're interested. All the best and thanks. Bye. Thanks, Bye. Okay, bye. Thank you for listening to the Scandalmongers podcast. This has been a podcast world production. You can get in contact with our show by emailing team at podcastworld.org, placing Scandalmongers in the heading, or via our social media links within the show's bio. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com.